Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Okay, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12, so be ready. Be ready, Acts chapter 12. It was this time... A year ago that we started Acts. We've been in Acts for a year now. Uh, And it's my prayer that in one year we could look back and see that God's Word has had its intended effect on our lives. Alright, so if you look back over the last year, you can ask yourself, how is it that God has changed you based on what we've learned from Acts? It's my prayer that in one year's time we have grown more fearless, more humbled, more prayerful, more faithful, and more radical because of this book. Now last time we were together, we saw Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas and Paul, they teamed up together, okay? It was a dynamic duo of sorts. And they went into Antioch, uh, a city of heathens. We looked at that very closely a wicked city that was turning its eyes towards Jesus Christ and the church was being established. And Barnabas and Paul went to that city for a one-year time, investing in them, discipling them, and building up a church. And we talked about what it meant to have a church like the church in Antioch. It's a model church for our New Testament church. And I pray that we would continue to look back at Acts chapter 11 as the example that it is for us. But as we move forward, what we're going to see is that the persecution in Jerusalem didn't let up. It didn't let up. And for the church in Jerusalem, as their leadership, as their religious leaders turned away from Jesus Christ, the persecution against those believers, those who chose to turn towards Christ, greatly increased. And so the the message today is titled, God's Work of Deliverance. We're going to see God working in a mode of deliverance in the life of Peter And we're going to see what that looks like, but we're going to also see what it looks like to trust God regardless of deliverance. We're going to see that today as well. Let's go ahead and start in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. And it says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. Now, this Herod is Herod Agrippa I. All right, He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, a lot of us are familiar with Herod the Great from from the Gospels. Okay, now Herod the Great was the king of Judea, a cruel man whose suspicious character led him to actually kill his wife and two of his own sons. Okay, and so this Herod, his grandfather, was incredibly wicked. He comes from a wicked line of leaders. And you guys might remember that from, uh, from Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it was actually Herod the Great that murdered every male child under the age of two out of fear of the prophecy of the Messiah. So he had caught in word. In fact, he had had a dream uh, that the Messiah was coming and that he would be a leader and that he'd be a ruler. Okay, And in his fear, he created a policy that said every child that's a male under the age of two in Judea, we're going to kill him because he was so afraid of the truth of Scripture. Man, what, I mean, what a wicked and twisted response to such a valid truth. 
The Messiah did come. And God had a plan. And He preserved that child until, until He was manifest on the cross. Now, King Herod the, 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 the Great, the one from, from the Gospels, um, he had tried very hard to build a bridge and a relationship to the Jewish people. He himself was a Gentile, a Roman, okay, and, and an oppressor, right? But yet, he tried to build a bridge to the Jewish people by rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, but this was absolutely a failed attempt. He was not respected. I mean, obviously with policies like we're going to kill every male child under two, you're not going to win over people that way. And he was hated. He was greatly hated. Now, when King Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa I, came into power, he was seeking to fix what his grandfather had done. Okay, he wanted to mend that fence and offer an olive branch, if you will, and really, truly build a bridge to the Jewish people. All right, And so he worked to, to, to do what many, many other rulers, uh, Roman rulers over Judea could not do. It was a very difficult thing to bridge that gap. And so it was his strategy to compromise with the Jews as much as possible. So in this case, that meant hating the things that the Jews hated, meaning the Christians. And so the persecution was no longer a policy of the religious order. The persecution of Christians in Judea was no longer something that was left to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish elite. It was now a policy of the Roman government. We will snuff out the Christians. So the heat was turned up. And it cost the the brethren dearly. And, and I'm sorry, I'm, uh, <clears throat> it's funny, you know, uh, studying God's word. You grow to know the characters of scripture, don't you? You look at the apostles' lives and you see their interactions with Christ and you come to know them. You know their character. You see who they are. You look at, you look at their stories and they become your friends. And in a very real sense, the apostles are our friends and our brethren. And we will one day be united with them. And so when I look at the persecution, it's hard for me. It's hard for me. Verse 2 says, And he killed James. It was that easy, right? He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Okay, one of the, the two dear sons of Zebedee. He killed. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, we're introduced to James and his brother. And it says, And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Two men famous for their eagerness to follow Christ. Now James, the first apostle to drink of the cup of the martyrs. 
first among them to receive that crown. Now we know all of the apostles, besides John, will suffer a martyr's death. We know that, but James here is the first one. A man with years of ministry potentially ahead of him, cut down in his prime. He was not even given the benefit of trial or public hearing. A sword tore him down, likely within the court of a cowardly king, Herod Agrippa. A small price to pay to appease the Jewish populace. And yet, and yet the true king of Judah watched on. Ready to receive his son. And ready to turn loose the gospel upon the Gentiles in a way that that even today we can't understand. And so while one false king, Herod, over Judea, wipes out a godly man, another king of Judah receives him in a moment. And the question is, what is to be learned from the loss of James? Before we continue on in our narrative, what is to be learned in this moment? Perhaps nothing more than a reminder for those first century Jewish Christians and for us of the following. Key point number one. The maturity of a servant, the servant of God, is measured by their obedience within suffering. The maturity of a servant is measured by their obedience within suffering. You know, not much is said here about James or, or how he died or how he was captured, but what is obvious is that his death warrant is proof that from beginning, from the moment that he cast down his net to the very end, he had truly abandoned everything to become a fisher of men. That from the moment that he left the ship where his father stood and waved goodbye, to join himself to the man Jesus Christ through the temptation and the difficulty of the death, burial, and resurrection of his Savior, to the difficulty that they faced in the early years in a fledgling fledgling church in Jerusalem, through all of that and all the persecution from beginning to end, he was a marked man with a death sentence over his head. And all the disciples knew the cost. They knew it. But the question for us is, do we? Do we see things in those regards? See, perhaps no one in here is facing a physical death sentence. That's not the kind of persecution that we necessarily face. But I want to say something to you. There are brothers and sisters who have come to this place in Kansas City to study engineering or to get their doctorate, who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They've spent time here getting discipled, being invested in, and they go back to their home country. And they must count the cost of the the very fact, the very truth, that there is a mark on them. 
And if their faith was known, they would absolutely be in danger of losing their lives. And so you aren't as far away from that reality as you think, brothers and sisters, in Kansas City, worshiping Christ. It is a reality that's upon us. And our brothers and sisters, they face it. And here's the truth. For those who face death and for those who face other sorts of persecution, Satan has a sinister plan. In fact, it's perhaps more refined for those of us living in the comforts of America. Because for us, Satan's plan is to lull us to sleep. It's to think that we are safe. And I want to say something to you. That far worse than the cup of the martyr is the cup of self-delight. Because in the cup of self-delight is a slow poison that lulls you to sleep and makes you without effect for the gospel's sake. Have you been lulled to sleep? Or are you like James, who in a city of a thousand people was marked as the Christian who posed a threat? Does the enemy see you as a threat? I mean, if we're honest, many of us, we are of no concern to Satan. Because we're asleep. Asleep in the light. And we have the reality of the gospel in us but not in our actions and not in our words and not in our deeds. And so we sleep. And my point to you is this, is that maturity is going to look like us counting the cost of following Christ every single day and relating to the death of James and looking at it and contemplating it and considering it as our own. That's a hard thing to do, and I know that maybe it's abstract, but if you live your life in the Scriptures, it's not really that abstract. It becomes a reality very close because you tie your heart to the men and women of Scripture, and we tie our hearts to those we minister to, and we recognize there is a cost, and we choose to suffer it alongside of them. Now there's a warrant for Peter. Herod feels his popularity and the attention of the Jews increasing, right? So he, he, he murders James. He murders James. And the Jews support him. And he can feel his popularity increasing. And so it's only natural that he decides to go for the most well-known of all the apostles, Peter, verse 3. And because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Peter, after all, is the one that stood up to them in the temple. When they, when they commanded him not to speak of Christ, he made it clear to them that he would do no such thing. In Acts chapter 5, verse 28, we are reminded of his boldness. He said to them, saying, Did not we straightly command, this is them actually, did, we, uh, did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in, in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us, speaking of Jesus. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought not, or we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. 
Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, which God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay him. No, Peter was a marked man. He was a dead man walking from that moment on. And so King Herod knew that the the easiest thing and the smartest thing for him to do to to increase his popularity was to go after uh, Peter. Now this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is closely associated with the Passover. And during this time, the Jews were to remove any leaven from their homes in accordance with ritual law. And so uh, some of you might be familiar with this from the Old Testament. But let me put it this way. Leaven was a picture of sin in Scripture. And so if you know anything about baking, most of you don't. If you're anything like me, you have no idea. Okay, And it took explanations like this for me to understand what leaven was. But leaven is a fermenting agent. Okay, It's a fermenting agent. So what it does is it causes bread to rise when it's baked. Okay, Now, the point of, 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 of leaven as a scripture of sin, or as a picture of sin in scripture, is the idea that just a little bit of leaven actually is, is like a poison. And it increases and it cultivates and it ferments. Okay, just a little bit of sin does the same thing, doesn't it? And so while this is a picture for the Old Testament Jew, it's also a picture for the New Testament believer. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, the principle for Christians is that, there, that, that if just a little bit of sin in our lives is allowed to cultivate, then, then we will in, continue to entertain it, and it will grow and it will increase, and it will manifest Greatly, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. Now, the irony is that the Jews were so consumed with the appearance of leaven and the ritual of the law that they could not see the sin that was fermenting within their hearts. Okay, this is what I mean. So the command for, in, in the ritual law was like, was like this. The Jews had to go into their homes And they had to purge out, if there was any leaven present, they had to purge it out. They had to clean their homes. And so they were busy doing that in preparation of the Passover. They were in their homes. They were sweeping. They were dusting. They were mopping. They were cleaning. And in the same moment, they stood in celebration of James the Apostle's murder. And the blood was upon their hands as much as it was on King Agrippa's. See, there's a great danger for us. There's a great warning here. See, we set out to rid our house of leaven too, don't we? Don't we do that, Christians? The things in our lives that we are convinced are sin, we scrub the kitchen, we clean the cabinets in order to prepare ourselves, don't we? Purging out the sin. But all the while, many of us, we fail to be critical enough to find that there is leaven hiding in plain sight. That there are sins that we choose to neglect. 
There are things that we refuse to address. I don't, how many of you have ever done a work day or a cleaning day with Pastor Sam Miles? No one has ever done that. You've been with Sam and you've been cleaning the church. Now, if you've ever cleaned with Sam Miles, the thing that you have to recognize is that he does not miss anything. He doesn't miss anything. If there's a bit of dust on a shelf, it does, like, it's like he can, he can smell it out. If the, he can't even see it, but he's like, I smell dust up there. Am I right, Sam? Okay. Shane Manser refers to, to, to Sam Miles lovingly as the Arkansas eyeball. And what that means is, well, he comes from the South, and, he, and he's got a good eyeball. That's all that means. I mean, he sees everything, if something's crooked. Or, you know, as it concerns loving in our lives, we don't see that way, do we? And because we don't, it allows us to commit horrendous crimes against one another and God and somehow continue on with our religious activity and life as though nothing has gone wrong. I mean, it just kills me to picture in my mind the Jewish people in Jerusalem sweeping their homes and approving of James's murder. Key point number two, unsuspecting and undealt with sin multiplies and compounds over time and it will reveal itself it will reveal itself. It will manifest itself. And if God is merciful to you, He'll do it in a way that keeps you safe. But that's not a promise. If you choose to sin, if you choose to not deal with sin, it will multiply, it will compound, and a little, little leaven in your life will leaven the whole lump and it will be revealed just as bread rises. Your sin will rise. And it will be to your judgment. And we must continue daily in God's word, letting it reveal our sin. You know, it's difficult to be critical. And I know as a young person, it's especially difficult to take criticality. You know, some of the, when I first came into ministry in Kaya, I recognized among my leaders, when I sat down with them to tell them hard things, it was difficult for them to receive those things. And the reason is because you're young, and you want to suppose that you're doing right because you're idealistic. You want to suppose that you're headed the right direction, and I get that. And let me just gently say to you that you are as much a sinner as you were when you were 12, and you are as much a sinner as you will be when you're 85. You are a sinner, and you will constantly be purging out leaven in your life. It will be an ongoing activity from now until death, until, until eternity. It will be something you have to deal with. And just because God has cleansed your sins and set you apart for His eternal purposes does not mean that you don't deal with it. And if we are not critical, and if we don't daily address the sins in our life, we will be just like these Jews, sweeping things out, looking to appear as though we're uh, uh, not sinful looking to appear righteous. And yet all the while, we stand approving of wickedness everywhere around us. That blood will be on our hands. This is why, this is why we do discipleship. This is why we do small groups. This is why in our small groups, brothers and sisters, we choose to be vulnerable. Because we need the criticality of our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not perfect either. Okay, So get off your high horse. If you're expecting for them to be perfect... 
They're not going to be. They are your friends. They are your brothers and sisters. And you are to listen to them. And you are to weigh their words against the words of God. And in so doing, you will prove out what is sin and you will deal with the leaven. You know, I met with a young man yesterday. Uh, I met him at the coffee shop. And uh, this young man um, has been at our church for probably two years now. And for a long time, it was clear he struggled with depression, isolation, separating himself uh, from the rest of the believers, just unsure, scared, and caught up in his own anxiety, insecurities, and sin. And uh, the testimony of this brother yesterday in the coffee shop was that over the last few months, he's decided to go to a small group. And he has felt their love, their support. He has taken their counsel. He has listened. And his testimony to me is that everything has changed. And I see it in his countenance. I see it in his joy. And so the thing that appears to be hard, vulnerability, is the thing that he needed most to set him free. We need that as well. Verse 4, Peter was captured. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in a prison and delivered him to four quaternions. Someone, someone say that, can say that word? If you can say that word, yeah, sure, right? Yeah, sure, yeah, uh-huh. Do you know what it means? Yeah, I do. Quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. So they got him. They set out to get Peter. They got him. They got their man. Four quaternions is 16 soldiers. So, so he was secured by two chains, several keepers, an iron gate with two wards or watchers, and 16 of these soldiers. They weren't playing around, were they? That's a lot of people for one man. After all, Herod knew the story of Peter's miracles, and he wasn't willing to be the butt of the joke. Right? So they, they weren't playing here. Herod wanted the opportunity to parade Peter before the Jews, before he killed him. This is a great PR move on his part. All right? Marketing genius here. So Peter remained imprisoned, until the ideal moment, which would have been after the Passover holiday, when Herod would have had all the attention of the Jewish people. So here's Peter in a prison. Verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison. But prayer was made. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church and to God for him. So James is murdered. Now Peter's in prison. Satan's strategy is hard against the people. But let us not forget that when God is involved, there is always a but to disrupt 
the agenda of evil. And in this case, the plans of evil are foiled by one very special and important and cherished agent in our lives, prayer. Prayer. Just as the prison doors were shutting, the mouths of the saints were opening. And the doors of heaven swung wide. When prayers of faith are made, it is an invitation to God to do the miraculous. And let's pause here to remind ourselves of the undergirding of the Acts of the Apostles, something God reminds us of of regularly in the book of Acts, because it's here that we find the the words prayer or praying 32 times in this book. And we find 19 accounts of prayer in Acts. They're constantly praying in the early church. They're constantly praying. And notice that it says that the early church, that they made prayer. They made it. They made it. What a beautiful word. They made prayer. Prayer was made. It was made, which means it implies intention and preparation. Listen, to make prayer means cultivating a discipline, a craft of the mind and the heart. Prayer is a craft of the mind and the heart, resulting in a practical yet inspired dialogue between creation and its creator. That's what prayer is. And it's to be made without ceasing. That's what the early church did. Early Christians in Scripture knew how to pray without ceasing. Romans 1.9 says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Now it wasn't just Paul who did that. He made this commandment in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He tells them, pray without ceasing. And that's what these friends of Peter did. It was, a, it was done so in a seamless manner. You know, if praying without ceasing means that prayer follows you in the in-betweens of life. In the in-between. In every moment, it is a part of your lifestyle. And this is how we ought to make prayer. Listen, on your knees. And in your car. And in your class, and while you walk, and while you read, and when you are with your friends, and when you are at work, and on and on, just like that. See, it's not I pray while I'm on my knees, or I pray when I'm in my car. It's I pray on my knees, and in my car, and while at work, and it is seamless. It is a perpetual aspect of our lives that is the discipline a lifestyle of prayer is completely countercultural to our christian perspective today christianity acknowledges the privilege of prayer but refuses to establish disciplines to see it manifest true and powerful in our lives and something has to seriously change in our approach because when the proverbial prison doors begin to shut around us Prayer must be our keenest instinct. 
So when someone refuses the gospel, a friend or a family member or a classmate, but prayer. When a Christian, a brother or a sister falters, but prayer. When life's pain takes hold, And suffering seems to surround us. But prayer. And when prayers are made, resolution comes. And God's will is made a reality. Key point. Did we get it? Key point number three. Mature Christians are convinced prayer is the relational Invocation of God's will. It is a calling for His will to come down and be true in the reality of our lives. That's what it is, and we must learn it. Because it invites resolution. Regardless of the outcome, there will be resolution. It will be on God's terms, perhaps, but it will be there. Verse 6, Peter's escape. And when Herod would have... Brought him forth the same night. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the doors kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. He says, Wake yourself. Come to. It's time. It's time to skedaddle. And skedaddle is in my notes because I wanted to say it. It's a great word. And every opportunity you have to say skedaddle, you should take advantage of that. In times of difficulty, we have to understand that God wants us to find our way to Him. Now, I'm not going to go in depth here, but when we see the angel of the Lord in Scripture, it is at least 90% of the time Jesus Christ pre-incarnate and perhaps post-incarnate. In other words, When we read about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, what we see is that he is a divine being, a part of the triune God. Okay, We can can debate that issue later, but but my point is, is that even if this isn't Christ in this prison cell, it is absolutely a picture of him. And what we have here is is a very clear picture of the rapture, what we just talked about in the last service. What we see here is a rapture, the coming of Jesus Christ to set us free. And it's a very powerful one. Now, I want to point out very practically some elements that we see here in this prison escape that are profitable for our understanding of God's deliverance in our life. Has has anybody ever needed a deliverer? Has anybody ever needed a deliverer from sickness, from pain, from suffering, from difficult circumstances? We've all, at some point, needed a deliverer, and we've, we've needed Jesus Christ Now, I want to point out to you that when Jesus Christ comes to deliver us, He he does so by shining a light in a dark place. See, our God is in the business of bringing light to His children. He has a way of lighting the path, path in the midst of need. John 12, 46 says, I am come a light 
into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Psalm 119.105 says, The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And what an encouragement to know that when God comes, when He comes, He comes with light. I don't know if you've ever watched one of these movies. I highly suggest not watching movies like this because I'm a little bit claustrophobic. But the movies where people are trapped, say, like in a cave. That guy was trapped under a rock. But yeah, he was trapped. That's for sure. That, don't, that's not a, don't watch that movie. The guy under the rock movie? Yeah, don't watch that. Uh, or, like a, or in a submarine, right? And the submarine's going to go down. And they've got like a limited amount of time to get out, right? But when those movies end good, they always end the same way, don't they? With a light. They always end with a light. Because the light is hope. It is hope to move forward. It is hope for escape. It is hope for another opportunity. It is the encouragement of the Lord. When He comes, He also comes with words of preparation. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garments about thee. He gives Peter detailed instructions on how to prepare for the escape. Gird thyself, which means to put on your undergarments. Okay, now I'm not going to get into the, the Jewish garb of the time period. But there were layers of garments, and he was asked to gird himself. And, in other words, put his clothes on, get ready. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Wherefore, gird up thy loins of your mind, of your mind. Prepare your mind the way you put on clothes. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot to say there. I won't. God knows that we need in our moments of trial his words to provide exactly what we need, a prepared escape. Behold, I, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. It's really interesting, isn't it? Keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. See, preparation is crucial to the life of a believer. And the angel of the Lord calls Peter to prepare for the escape. Now, if we're using an end times perspective here, if we're talking about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, then I want to call you, my brothers and sisters, to prepare yourself for His coming. We must be prepared. We have to put on the garments. And the beautiful thing is He's asked to put on His sandals. And what that implies is walking. Walking in preparedness. Being prepared to go, to go to the nations, to go to those in need. Preparation means action. There will be action. Put your garments on so that you're, you don't stand ashamed. Put your sandals on so that you can walk in the reality of Jesus Christ. We must be prepared. And then when He comes, He comes to lead the way. He comes to lead the way. It says in verse 8, and follow me. And follow me. I love those words. The same words that he gave to James and John. Follow me. <laughs> so good. 
And he went out and followed him. And wist not that it was true which, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate. Man, okay, and there's a beautiful picture here of gates in this narrative. Maybe we'll come back to this, but he stands at an iron gate. The iron gate has nothing on him. So they came to the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and they passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. So God leads the way out of the prison. He says, Follow me. He leads him out of the prison and directly where? Onto the street. He doesn't lead him to a place of hiding. He doesn't lead him to a place of comfort. They don't go, they don't go to the upper room. They don't go hide away. Where does he lead him? He leads him to the street. Why? Why would he lead him to the street in the darkness of the night? Because the street is where the work gets done. He's not calling him to a place of comfort. He's not, at, he's not giving him an escape route so that he can go hide. He's calling him right back to the streets where he was arrested. Get to work. And that is the call on our lives. God may deliver you. You may have a hard circumstance, a difficult trial, a moment of suffering. And if God leaves you out of that place of suffering, shame on you. If you use that as an opportunity to go to a place of comfort when you ought to go to the street. We gather our, ourselves, we put on our garments, we put on our sandals, and Jesus Christ leads us straight out into the street so that we can get right back to work. Now I want to make a note here before we close. I want to say something very important to you. In our story, we've seen one apostle who escapes. Right? And we've seen one who dies. One was delivered, and another wasn't. Why? Why? Isn't that always the question, isn't it? Was James' faith not strong? As strong as Peter's? Of course that's not the issue. That's not the issue. I think a lot of times we assume that our prayer and our faith and our desires simply override God's will and plan. That is the wrong assumption. As though he has no choice but to give us exactly what we want, an escape route on our terms. For James, that escape route didn't come. You know, some of you may know, um, when I was 22, my brother died in a car accident. Some of you guys know that. Now, in, in the years before he died, I, I, he was living a lifestyle that, that, that put him in danger. And I have prayer journals that I, I really I can't go back to. I haven't looked at. They sit in a closet, in the very back of a closet. I can't go back to them. It's too hard for me. But in, the, in those prayer journals, I pleaded with God not to take the life of my brother for years because I knew in my gut it was a real possibility. I always assumed that God would do exactly what I asked him to do. That was my imagination. 
But he didn't. He didn't do that. And perhaps, you know, perhaps I asked the question why. I asked many questions during that time period. But the why is not significant. See, we assume in our prayer life that the best our imagination can come up with is the best solution. So we impose our will upon God. But God's way is always better. God's way is always better. You know, Paul prayed three times that, that what he struggled with, the thorn in his flesh would be taken. 2 Corinthians 12, 8, he prayed three times and God did not answer his prayer. Does that mean God was not with him? The fact that God didn't deliver him exactly the way he expected him to, did that change the fact that God still wanted to use Paul? Of course not. Peter was delivered by a light and by hearing angelic words. But listen to me, brothers and sisters, listen to me. James was delivered into the light to dwell eternally with the living word of God, the very presence of Jesus Christ. And I ask you, who had it worse? Who had the better escape route? In my opinion, it was James. And his testimony stands. He was a righteous man, and we ought to live in his footsteps What is important is not escape. What is important is worship. Key point four. Escaping pain is vastly less important than God's glory. Escaping pain is vastly less important than God's glory. And what I'm saying is, regardless of the outcomes, guys, regardless of how your story plays out, regardless of whether or not you get all the things that you ever wanted, God's glory supersedes all of that. And we ought to put our faith in Him. And many of us right now, we're struggling with having that kind of faith. And if that is you, I I would ask that as we close in worship, the worship team can come up, as we close in worship, that you would take some time to pray. Perhaps you need to pray with another person, a mature believer who's ready to meet you where you're at and and to lift you up. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in His Word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.